0: Unsee the future. How to encourage the more hopeful human tomorrow. Part 20. Art. The sun had not quite slipped below the rugged stone line behind me, dipping the rough, honey-colored history into silhouette. In those last few moments of the ordinary day, the dazzling low rays of our star still pumped heat into the dusty humid air, cloying us together as the old city rooftops encircling us turned pink. But we no longer felt weary. Weary from the ordinary day. Even an ordinary day in another country. What we began to feel Was a strangely calm sense of excitement just waiting there in those last few moments before we knew the ordinary day was over the well of the arena opening below us was a yawning crater like a fearsome unfolded iris to the underworld exposing who knows what, legends, creatures and heroes, to the first couple of stars blinking out of the prehistoric, indigoing sky. And it was filling up with very nice middle class people on red carpets in the expensive seats on the arena floor, where the bloodbaths used to happen in the Roman games, watched by the proles in the cheap seats high above. We'd climb to the very top and back of Verona's vast and ancient theatre I'd never seen opera before. The lovely first lady of Momo and I had often pondered taking the cultural plunge at last, but I'd vowed it'd be something delightfully playful like Mozart. In the end, it was something fearsomely grander, and the spontaneous idea of a couple of other family members on the end of a little road trip across Europe this summer that found my favourite wife and I in different countries for the last leg. As I said to her afterwards, Sure, it was kinda mind-blowing, but it was long, and there was only one good tune. And like no dancing. She shrugged. Ballet, we've jollied off to enjoy a good few times together over the years, because they apparently let in people like us now. As a lover of dance and human body expression, more often of the club music variety, Mrs. Peach is also delighted in many of the famous tales told through classical movement, as the odd highbrow feeling grown up night out can be a nice bit of theatre in every sense. Everyone needs a touch of culture swank occasionally to feel like you're somehow clever after all. And sure, it's not the Beatles, but most of the classical ballets have at least a few good tunes in them we can all half remember in the bath afterwards. Grand opera, however, for my favourite wife, might be akin to a modernist jazz recital or an intimate evening of Morrissey a cappella, something I could picture her starting a saloon bar punch-up in the middle of to help find the proper culture a little more engaging. This production, though, just seemed like too grand a classical bit of culture to miss on my one night in Shakespeare's invoked City of Doomed Love, away from my gratefully so far working out love. For this tale too, like Romeo and Juliet, was of just that. A tragic star-crossing of lovers brought to bitter end by politics. Giuseppe Verdi's Aida. Now, I've never really loved old Joe Green's work, Epic as it reveredly is. Couldn't get past the wasted opportunity another number of his is the Chorus of the Hebrew Slaves, being as unmiddle eastern or evocatively anciently Jewish sounding as it's rather boringly possible to be, to my ears. But everyone loves Aida, as was obvious from the fascinating range of show posters lining the perimeter of the Verona Arena from more than a century of putting grand cultural works into a craggy Roman entertainment space some 2,000 years old. A genius combination, somehow, and a bit of a cue to the civilising effect of modern culture. No doubt. As the sun dropped out of direct sight, the stage lights warmed up slowly, and I could tell this was going to be something, well, grand. The hundred-foot rotating pyramid sat in the middle of the stage, for one thing. And when the orchestra struck up and the principals emerged resplendent in exquisite costume, reminiscent of ancient Egyptian courtly life, the tradition of performing all without sound reinforcement was impressive. The glimmering light design and light-catching fabrics, placed across a vast stage space under the ever-deepening inky star-speckled heavens, unfolded a scene of something magical. What otherworldly other word is there? An atmosphere all at once, antediluvially ancient, civilizationally old, and much more recently historic. It just drew us in, suspended in epic temporary belief in something extraordinary. Franco Zeffirelli himself, legendary filmmaker, had so commandingly staged this whole production apparently that he'd even choreographed a lunar eclipse to rise and unfold from blood moon to shining silver disc amid the constellations precisely behind the stage end of the arena across precisely the three hours of the sweltering Italian night. Is there nothing the grand master wizard of storytelling, our traditional high priests of culture whom we so revere? cannot do it was three hours of supreme art is what it was and it obviously felt a bit sort of fusty. it was unequivocally old school art you might say across Verdi's rich and beautiful but oddly unaffecting score at least for me Opened out and filed through a series of massive tableaus. A cast of a few hundred, possibly impressive. But essentially, an exhibition of costume theatre design, moving around carefully. Three hours of showing off needlework and woodwork and fingerwork, essentially. And it was utterly amazing. An absolute spectacle of skill and a massive slab of your actual culture that I couldn't very deeply connect with. Cheers anyway, Frank and team. I mean, you'd have to be dead from the pulmonary vowels down to not feel something at the climax. And it is a story that deliberately scales from impersonally stately formality to messy human heartbreak as it glides through its libretto with the skill of musicianship and voice across cast and players that was world-class human talent... From the narrative to the spectacle, this was art that absolutely had a right to light up the shadows of millennia of history because in so many component ways, it spoke across time, pressing anciently sensitive human buttons. So I still clap my hands off at the end, obviously, because really, wow. In the end, it simply felt like a privilege to be there. But it did make me wonder... What is the purpose of such grand, high art like this today? And indeed, what is the purpose of any art when there are some fearsome practical challenges to deal with in the real world? Why should art feel like something for the privileged? Is it because only the privileged can afford to be so self-indulgent? If so, then jeepers, this episode of Unsee the Future will qualify me more than any other as either an unconsciously biased part of the hierarchical problem or an insufferably progressive social justice warrior. Whoever comes through the siege barrier first, I'm reasonably certain they will be pretty joylessly unimpressed with me. And who can blame them? This essentially special episode of my researching podcast project is all about the most self-indulgent thing you could spend your time doing. Well, almost. And I've apparently put it at the very heart of the whole endeavour. If you weren't so unfathomably niche, Peach, you might one day be dangerous, mostly to yourself. Because art... It's all very well, of course, but art is a little bit of pompous luxury when the world's on fire, no? Productions like this one are more like signals of decadence as the ship goes down, surely? So what relevance has art got to the real problems of our times? Who is it really helping? The fact that you are already thinking of a few examples and also suggesting that it depends a bit on what kind of art we're talking about is a rather hopeful signal of our age, I might quietly think, up front. Don't blame me if you're already accidentally more of an insufferable progressive than you righteously realise. And as distant, highbrow or old school as Aida in a Roman arena in Verona may absolutely sound, there was no escaping that night that an experience so evocative, makes it easy to forget the world outside with all its muck and blood and ruddy disappointment. Caught up in there, thinking of other past and mythical worlds, suspending your feelings about your own troubles for a bit. More than 10,000 people a night there seem to think so, certainly, today, in the 21st century. Because, you know, it's all rather nice, isn't it? Especially when the troubles of the real world outside that ancient arena and all the arenas of our imaginations are as potentially terrifying as we all wonder about at the moment. But if that's the main aim of art, is escapism really the best use of our time right now? Isn't sticking our heads in a popcorn bucket rather the whole problem of our age? As Unsee the Future has explored already, there seems to be an unprecedented converging of global problems out there right now. One that can't stay locked out of the opera stadium or the movie theatre. The very world we've known seems somehow under threat. Perhaps as surely as by any vast ancient army seeking war over a lost princess, or any Independence Day alien invasion... Except it's chillingly more like Invasion of the Body snatchers. I think many of us think. Which is just the sort of McCarthy-esque paranoia plenty of people would like you to feel at the moment, I'm sure. Such seem our times. My own contention, laying out the foundation of this podcast through the UN's Global Goals for Sustainability in Series 1, is that the great catastrophe that seems to be unfolding on multiple terrible story arcs all at once around us like Game of Thrones fractaled, may also be the greatest window of opportunity we've ever had to address a bunch of fundamental problems and perhaps put us on a path to redemption, the hero's journey for us all. Filmmaker Duncan Jones, son of cultural icon David Bowie and creator of sublime science fiction mind tickler Moon, said this recently on Twitter. My desire to use renewables comes with a twist. I am not looking to minimise my lifestyle. I'm not a granola eating crunchy looking to be invisible to the planet. I don't want to save energy. I want to generate so much renewable clean energy, I can afford to waste it. This is essentially the obvious implication to me of all things sustainable. A word. One I have avoided researching deliberately and will do so here for now too. Abundance. I know, among some of the wealthiest changey hopers, this is a capitalised ambition. But I've dodged looking at it at all as a movement to see if my own research ends up anywhere near it. And in broad principle, I can already see how possible it is for humankind to have an abundant future. And energy might be the way in the way to tackle many of our converging problems. As Jones lists out some headlines of how clean energy thinking can add up, he says, I do believe there is an amazing coincidence going on that as we reach a point of terrible self-inflicted destruction on our planet, we are ironically so close to having the knowledge and skills to repair all the damage we've done and live on in a clean and sustainable way. And he adds, there is a race going on between civilizations' collapse and a conversion to a sustainable future. And bizarrely, there are people rushing in both directions. Now I'm not so sure of the realities of just how much we can repair all the damage done. I wonder if it will take the scars of such terrible damage on our minds as much as the planet's surface to help us truly move on. Such massive trauma to life on Earth may be Stripe's very hard-won in our growing up. But the opposite directional rushing, Zowie points out there, is the central weirdness to our now. We suddenly live in polarised times like none before them across the West, and it does seem like an ideological struggle between looking backwards and looking forwards, splitting families and nations with rhetoric-spitting preach. And if it shows anything, to me it shows what we will need in order to unlock the potential of now, which is as great as the threats. And if you think you're looking forward as much as I am in your rather different approach to everything, I can only apologise. It's part of my unconscious bias. Do please be gracious. Because what we'll need, I think both of us, is new outlooks on everything, on what it means to be human, currently just on Earth. It's already a well-trodden theme, but I can't help feeling we've only just begun making use of it. Researching the UN's goals to save us has shown me two things I currently feel strongly as a result. The real usefulness of the goals to Ordinary Farty, Twerpy, you and me at ground level is not the individual strategies of each separate goal. They're educational, vitally perhaps. But those individual goal pages online still don't give real calls to action at the bottom of them to Ordinary Farty, Twerpy, you and me. Because I don't think they've quite worked out how to, still. Which rather dangles the hopey-changey thing just out of reach above us. What I think the goals are essential for is something that could actually unlock our thinking in the most vital way. Ordinary farty twerpy you and me. They can help us put it all together in our minds. Dwelling on all the goals can flick a quiet switch in your head. At first, it can all seem either academic or overwhelming. The massive troubles in the world you'd rather not be thinking about, guess you've got enough at ground level you'd rather not be thinking about. But I've come to the conclusion that the single most significant problem of the modern world could be its mindset of disconnection. Spending time with all the problems of the world at once, calmly over herbal tea, can begin to form the idea in your mind that these are not at all disconnected challenges. They are, in fact, potentially all symptoms of one global outlook, one earthwide human culture. The one that transformed the world in astonishing speed. Rational, industrially engineered merchant commerce. Capitalism, a culture that adds up by boxing up everything into countable, disconnected, shippable, sellable units. Is our fearsome now, a time of all the little boxes beginning to open? The boxes of our minds. We are used to living without a thought of where our food comes from and what we're putting into our bodies or our minds we used to living without a thought of who made everything we clothe our bodies with and out of what and what they were paid to do it or what it was like as an experience working to make our clothes or anything we own at all. We are used to living without a thought of where all the waste goes or just how much of it there is. We are used to living in a world of many differently flagged countries, thinking of the people living under those fluttering abstract symbols and within the artificially constructed cultural boundaries of nation-states as foreigners. And such cultural borders shape our own identities, our languages, our accents speaking them, and our beliefs about things we've never seen directly as the words come out of our mouths. Something dawned on me at Y Digital's hosting of Do It Day Bournemouth earlier this year, and it was a simple realization. Our age seems to be manifesting something in more and more of us across the board, across cultures and ages. Something that may be a key one to take note of, and it is of course, mental unwellness. Something about exponential modern life is twisting us inside. So it's interesting that many of the practically more sustainable responses to the logistical challenges of our time have a knock-on effect of helping mental health. Someone in our group found themselves writing the phrase environmental health equals mental health. Like the polar opposite mindsets of permaculture and industrial farming economics produce the opposite mental symptoms. Something about the way we're doing all things together at the moment certainly seems to be producing some tension inside us, some conflict. For one thing, modern life seems on the surface to have completely forgotten some basic facts of life. We are all made of soil from this one planet, and we all depend on its matrix of life. Any economics that doesn't value that is, you might say, some stunted maths. Which, put like that, means some very stunted maths engineered the foundations of the world we live in. How much can we keep going with all this, do you think? Before you even mention burn-it-once toxic waste-producing energy that has fueled the whole endeavour, this already sounds unsustainable to me. You can walk me round the junkyards and oil refineries and gang economies of the real world whenever you like, but the staggering poverty's and shifting, degrading environments of the same real world do beg the philosophical question, because it's fast becoming a pragmatically existential question. Any system that helps us begin to see all of the problems of now as components of one big problem, of one outlook has got to be life-saving in its potential, I think. Because it's the sheer numbers of us lot working within the same outlook that are amplifying the problem. We're all in it. But an outlook that begins with something like the global goals connecting all the converging symptoms in your imagination might well massage your mind to begin to see in your ordinary comings and goings, usages and purchases, savings and wastes that everything you do is part of the same thing, the same outlook, the same story. One so strongly impressed in our imaginations We don't see it consciously. Yet consciousness is really what we're talking about here. Waking up. then, yeah, as you know, that's how I became a hippie, apparently. And probably a Marxist. And lost to all common sense, right? Probably, I do have previous. But I think the goals can slowly form this realisation in anyone's mind. That it's all connected. And that is potentially indeed awakening for us ordinary, farty, twerpy, you and me. However, researching them, these goals, has also showed me something else, or at least I chose to see it this way, because listing out the whole world of problems onto a grand plan whiteboard does remind you, this is emotionally way over our heads at best, and overwhelming if we really feel able to dwell on any of it. It's depressing, it's fearful, It's simply way too much to engage with at the beginning when you first think about approaching it. Oddly, it isn't the more you look at it. But it is tough, and it dawned on me. The goals are missing a goal. One I think is crucial. One that tackles the very thing we'll need to actually implement all the others and so light up the whole plan and the ruddy future. Art. It is the business of creating new ways of seeing. And the UN's plan, as it stands, mentions not a thing of how we will change people's minds, of just how. We will do the only thing that will truly unlock what it will take to light up you and me. Inspire. How do we plan to inspire ourselves? The UN's plan as it stands doesn't roadmap how we can work up a new, more inspiring story of us. And what do we need more than this now? seeing. So I guess I'll speak personally for just a moment here for context. The first series of Unsee the Future has been, you know, a bit of a journey for me, man. Researching it has mapped out a circle of foundation for my own thinking about the world I find myself in today. To discover that there is a coherent working plan somewhere at high level to address all the fearsome global challenges in one connected mindset, I have found heartening. The UN's global goals for sustainability are devised to be both practical and hopeful, written in plain English and attempting to put everything of our now together into one determined outlook. Plus, it's kind of geeky. It appeals to just the sort of slightly high-minded strategic pencil straightening in me as a designer and writer. It sums things up. And it makes you feel like we can tackle the impossible seeming which means it could easily turn out to be as nicely branded and fancifully useless as me. But the truth is that it isn't the worthy, unqualified journalism of producing a factual podcast that has diverted my own outlook so consciously. What Unsee has done for me is amplify the understanding and begin to boost the new direction I'd already turned my mind towards. And that turn was inspired by something wholly creative – A simple idea for my next piece of work as an artist. The desire to take my amigos into space with the third Momo Tempo LP was obvious and single-minded. A no-brainer. Celebrate my lifelong love of science fiction in a few theatrical little tunes. Obviously! It was only when I began to consider how I'd structure the writing of this that I'd laid a trap for myself. A self-imposed snare lurking like a Trojan algorithm in a hidden shunt in my brain. One that, when triggered, would quietly turn all my instinctive mucking about into my mission. The Shape of Things to Hum It might have begun life as a bit of musical fun for me and amigos who all love the many worlds of imaginative storytelling that sci-fi has inspired over a hundred years. But the more I looked at the many themes of the genre, the more I felt them begin to juxtapose into a vibration, a question shimmering into focus like Blake, Jenner and Avon rematerializing in the teleport. Of all the apparent predictions of science fiction, which future is the most likely? Now sci-fi is not actually in the business of prediction, it is always the allegory, Of what if. But all those visions of the future, most of them resolutely dystopian, do blur into your imagination with enough ingestion of them and become cultural expectations, which focused a sudden thought as I began sketching out music. What if science fiction has effectively been teaching humanity the future? And if so, As it exploded from Geek Specs to Multiplex in its fanbase, could this mean we might even learn from it and one day be okay? Might we even survive the now of fearsome realities because of sci-fi? While you are obviously rolling your eyes at this latest convoluted leap, I went on immediately with making the idea the core thesis of the project and the jumping-off point for trying to devise a whole performance experience around the idea. How has science fiction been teaching us the future? And what have we had to learn? At some point, there is no escaping the implications of this. Namely, looking squarely at the now, sci-fi, or any creative thinking is trying to save us from. What is currently wrong? And why? And what are the trends of how we're really living? I'd already written my starting point thesis and turned it into a comfortingly physical, old-fashioned bit of print to wang on people's desks and begin the task of asking clever people if I was an idiot for devising such a creative ambition, when I then heard about the global goals. And suddenly, I had a structure to interrogate now with. But should I take the leap down the rabbit hole? Well, by now, I wasn't even asking such questions. I was too inspired. Shouty, interrupty, web ad model pop-up alert. Amigos on the mailing list can hear the whole proposition too. The shape of things to hum with the audiobook of its founding little thesis. You can download it and hear all about it if you fancy signing up to the regular memos. It has been a fearsome exploration, for sure. But my point here is that it was artistic impulse that inspired me, daft little stupid me, to dare to look at things I'd been blind to which made me wonder whether the only thing that might really save us is indeed, well, art. Because what else can tempt us, frighten us, entertain us, trick us, coax us, encourage us to look anew at the world around us we thought we knew? Us, fundamentally imaginative creatures of inner life, driving our outer mark-making on the world. This is all beginning to sound a bit abstract, but bear with me. This won't be a comprehensive thesis on the psychology or history of art. I may spend the rest of my life pondering such things. Were I to cave in and go back to university for a history of art degree, so cementing my retirement year's penury, I'm sure I would still be refining how I put all this. But this is my starting point for us to ponder, as we consider how to encourage anything more hopeful about the future. The basic idea... I have thrown up to test is this. Art is all about new ways of seeing, and there is nothing we need more than new ways of seeing. Everything, ourselves in the planet. It is time to write new stories of us, and perhaps it is science fiction that has been doing the most to help us think about human life in the grandest contexts, the most fundamental modes and, crucially, the human consequences. Looking forward. War and peace may be a touch of genius in writing, as well as steroids demanding endurance, because Tolstoy painted such a vast canvas of history and allowed the details of an unlikely character to very slowly catch the light of your attention. If you weep at the end, it is likely mostly to be with relief of having made it, but also I still hope at the true heroism of Pierre in his morally flawed, unsociety manner, humanity. But war and peace only captures one historic moment, a big one, but one moment in time that's happened. And it makes you look at something that's happened a different way. Yet science fiction shows you reality anew by reinventing reality. We're story creatures. You've heard it before, probably a lot lately. But what authors today don't picture the film of their novel and the A-listers playing their characters as they write it? Well, surely some still, I hope. Room 3. Storytelling Art is born out of, as well as encapsulates, the continuing battle between order and chaos. It seeks order or form even when portraying anarchy. It's a tension, visible in Greek statuary and the colour-filled paintings of Rothko and Newman, stopping off at every conceivable artistic movement in between. It's attention that arises from our natural urge to reconcile opposites. So says John York in his recent book, Into the Woods. Everyone seems to be talking about storytelling these days. I'm even doing it. I like the idea of telling little musical stories and of helping others tell their stories. But isn't this all quickly sort of hipster baby talk? Well, probably. But it's also helping us realise something in the cluttered modern world about how our primal human brains work. Because we positively live inside stories as a way of staying alive. A screenwriter who's worked on all manner of things off of the telly that you'll have heard of, York says that stories are basically the way that humans constantly manage to sort order from chaos. I'd say it feels to loads of us around the world that there is a great deal of chaos unfolding globally today. And that feeling seems like more than just information overload, now that the number of devices tying us to news and stories from around the world has exploded like a food blizzard in Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Everything we hear much more about that's apparently actually happening seems uncertain, right down to the fundamentals of life on Earth, when we dare to think about it. Makes our grandparents' fears about nuclear Armageddon sound rather quaint now ironic that we're mostly not bothering to worry about that particular existential threat at the moment when the precarious combined potential for a nuclear explosion around the world has never been greater yeah well parking that carefully over there for a moment i mean no one seems in charge properly anymore and everything is noisy so how will we generation now find a new sense of order People have been trying to build whole new orderings of the world before. It's the multiple story arc of the 20th century more than any other, and it mostly ended in misery, one way or another. Which is partly why the apparently unscripted, bright idea of making fun new things and selling them and playing with cars and refrigerators and advertising campaigns seemed like such a relief to so many Westerners, at least, after the last World War. Such a bright idea that, while pop music flourished as a whole new art form out of the new consumer times, damn teenagers were invented to buy it in countries like Poland behind the Iron Curtain. They made knockoff copycat pop of their own to try and furtively echo some good vibrations across their resolutely austere, anti-capitalist culture for at least a glimmer of reflected joy. To those on the more hopeful side of the wall, it all seemed so much more fun. And all the brave new worlds that have been murdering everyone and eviscerating all the farmland. And it all seemed so born out of such confidences, which seemed to create a sense of such possibilities. Kind of for everyone. A flowering of culture across laboratories, libraries and television screens. Awkwardly in that shadow of the sudden new possibility of nuclear annihilation. Sure, but every protagonist needs his and her grit, right? Stories, of course, can give us glimpses into our own workings. It's why we tell them. And it's not simply because books hold cold knowledge, though they very essentially do. Books are the way that the dead communicate with us, the way that we learn lessons from those who are no longer with us. The way that humanity has built on itself, progressed, made knowledge incremental, rather than something that has to be relearned over and over, says Neil Gaiman, possibly quoting Douglas Adams. Which is all brilliant, but there's more to it, he says. Somehow it's not the non fiction section in which many more of us find something coming alive within us. Fiction is the lie that tells the truth because what else speaks quite so effectively to us but the parable like an in joke when we laugh the hardest because we get it the parable can wake us up in the night with a sudden sense of realization because we've had it put together in our minds a shouty preach by comparison can just put us to sleep or even ruin our rest with a more paralyzing fear but it's even more than parable I think we actually think a bit like we're characters in a story, day to day. It's hardly surprising. Absolutely everything of the world around us is just a neurological construct in our own grey matter. After all, we make character choices about who we think we should be according to the story we think we're in. So understanding how story structure works a bit from a writer's point of view might help us unravel our own musings in a new way. One aspect, as John York explains, is that characters on the page, and us characters shuffling to the post office, have facades. They are ways of dealing with the tensions between our expectations and perceived reality. Be it internal, between parent and id, as Freud would put it, through his beard, or higher aims and baser desires, in other words, or external, between cultural demands or promises and personal experiences. In the journey of their stories, characters will have to face their fears to resolve their tensions, perhaps embrace their weaknesses to find their strength. If they are to really get anywhere and so make an interesting story, the projection, the facade, will have to drop. I'm not so sure a facade is merely cladding. And frankly, even if it holds no structural integrity to the building, a facade will likely look much better than a gaping hole. The character I play through my personality is part of the truth of me, I feel fairly certain. It's a bit less of an act than it probably looks. But a mask is a mask. A decision to hide the real face. And that is unresolved truth. And boy, but unresolved truth just seems to eat away at us humans. How long did it take you to come out, for example? Some ruddy annoying thing in the human brain wants to resolve conflict. So the challenge remains for all of us. How do we manage the tensions in our lives to find practical balances and so progress towards our goal over the precarious tightrope? Because you bet, like characters, we all have goals, and they always seem to be placed on the other side of precarious tightrope walks, like we're in some humdrum version of the Hunger Games after all. Yet, without the pain, how would we gain? What, as knowledge-seeking but empathetic creatures, would we ever know if we could never feel the value of anything? So what do our facades or masks say about our fears in the now of fearsome realities, feeling all this uncertainty, looking at all those impossible balances and far-off goals? What truths do you think we have been hiding about the ways we see the future? Because I rather think we're seeing some of them start to come out, all over message boards and into ballot boxes. And are many of those truths really the unresolved tensions of unfaced fears. Are we only just starting to face them? And will we have to much more to do any future building business? The drama is usually higher when the stakes are. I wonder if a good question to ask in the middle of this is, what characters are we playing in the current modern story of us that are going to have to journey towards a resolution of truth? in order to embrace the futures we most hope for, when we dare hope at all. How might any new story of us change us? Room 4. Shadowing. Jungian Theory. Pull up your unconscious and settle in. Because it's being referenced a lot, it seems, again these days, thanks especially to various man groups, helping gents find new languages for their inner lives. But whilst old Carl's shadow is a nice bit of poetic imagery, for example, his work follows initially in the footsteps of his teacher Freud, and is in train with many psychological storytellers broadly over the last century, who, between them, helped us all live with a gnawing, peripheral sense at least that humans do tend to carry around a conscious duality within them. Or an unconscious one. Don't forget which. Damn mean, it can't be both. I feel tense. In other words, that duality is our higher, better, boil-wash, white-robed hopes of us and our Skidmark gusset admissions of us. Still, dress for the part you want, I always say. Whether it's ego and unconscious or just... Some sense of good and bad Tom and Jerry could put an angel Jerry Next to a devil Jerry And kids in their thirties would laugh At the essential truth of such inner conflict We get it More entertainingly than when the Apostle Paul Says it in the newer end of the Bible But John York suggests It's this fundamental psychological firmware In the human brain Of so often not doing the things We feel we ought or want to do That makes story structure Resonate with us so instinctively. All the big-hitting psychoanalysts, he says, suggest that humans live in a neurotic state in which primal desires are at war with socially acceptable behaviour, and further, that they tacitly accept that these neuroses need to be integrated and overcome in order for happiness to be achieved. Ah, happiness. Remember when that was all we wanted? But I have simply lost count of how many times I have sagely quoted James T himself on this. I need my pain. I kind of do, mate. And while centuries of religious teaching inspired many to attempt to overcome their baser, more animal brain wiring for their image of God hopes, it was more modern thinkers that dared to suggest we should probably hold our dark side close on the transporter pad as Spock attempts to reintegrate our two halves for a healthier emotional strength. A James T. quote, incidentally, that I have lost count of sagely quoting, that is, from what I suddenly now realise, with an icy shock of horror, is not the classic episode The Enemy Within, but the single worst Star Trek movie in history, The Final Frontier. But if that isn't embracing your pain, I don't know what is. York's point is that all storytelling is really about paradox, truths in conflict, and that we all instinctively feel. All archetypal stories are journeys towards completion, voyages from darkness to light, and involve the reconciliation of opposites. A flawed, conflicted hero goes on a journey to become whole, integrating the lessons he has learned from others on the way. Successful happy endings, both in fiction and psychology, involve the individual resolving conflicts and learning to integrate and balance opposing forces. Just as all stories seek to resolve order from chaos, humans seek to still the raging conflict within. And he quotes F. Scott Fitzgerald. The test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. That series of impossible balances... F. Scott F.'s greatest character was surely attempting to blaze his own mighty trail of redemption, but in the end it is Jay Gatsby's youthful inability to face and deal with his shadows that catches up with him. And, reading the book finally this summer, it's obvious almost a century later that the great Gatsby was himself the embodiment of his age, its chronic inability to deal with grown-up emotional truth – Ploughing on, chasing illusions of power and glory, trying to make images of angels love us. A time in history that surely stands as the golden age of Americanism and all that it piqued our economic hopes to be. That world falling apart around us today, one might suggest calmly. Blessed are those, says Hamlet of Horatio, whose blood and judgment are so commingled that they are not a pipe for fortune's finger to sound what stops she please. Because Shakespeare kind of totally got this too, you see. Which brings me to Marvel, obviously. A movie franchise that must surely be an economic cocaine habit for the big studios that I doubt they will ever know how to quit. Short of an actual nuclear war to give everyone a bit of a break from all the endless punch-ups and explosions and render-bending CG, the Marvel Universe has done, nonetheless, a thriving job right in the massive mainstream. Because it is both rich in lore and intelligently written. It's kind of impossible not to at least half-like, and squillions of us seem to just love it, built as it is on such a creative heritage of unencumbered comic book storytelling, a medium that grew up weirdly and beautifully into something as pleasingly cerebral as graphic. And if there is someone amid the family of lovable, supposedly flawed heroes who has really been on a journey, it's actually the guy we should most resent. Billionaire Philanthropist Genius Playboy, Tony Stark As Alex McLeavy says in The A.V. Club, it's Stark everyone loves, despite being the Hollywood archetype to end them all. And while it's Robert Downey Jr.'s effortless-looking witty charisma pulling off and undoubtedly influencing those lines, Stark is a character who's travelled the furthest. Which means we really want to cheer on the rich guy who has it all, apparently. The notion of a powerful man laid low by hubris, forced to humble himself and relearn how to be moral and good, is a common origin story. But it held particular resonance for Tony Stark, a man who could already claim to have done some amazing things for the world. The other heroes aren't forced into quite such dramatic changes during their respective first films. Thor's debut involved him learning humility in order to appreciate the powers he previously had, so as to regain them. Captain America was almost the inverse an already noble spirit being imbued with the strength and ability to act as the hero he already was Bruce Banner's Hulk was a man rejecting the curse of an uncontrollable power placed upon him it didn't change his character so much as require him to learn to live with the change The closest point of comparison subsequently would be someone like Doctor Strange, a brilliant and vainglorious guy at the top of his field, forced by circumstance to start anew, though a car accident doesn't have quite the same metaphorical power as being taken hostage by terrorists using the very weapons you produced. As Alex puts it, Humanity cuts through in our empathy which is as much about our wish to ultimately be vindicated with a massively clever series of inventions we made ourselves before the next cocktail party as it is about seeing ourselves in the challenges, the losses. All stories are meant to speak to us because it's the very implication of telling a story at all. We sit down with them precisely because we expect them to connect with us. But I think you could say our constant need for superheroes in our centrally shared stories at the moment has robbed us a bit of the very agency such tales are meant to inspire in us. With every threat came a bigger feat of miraculous response from, like, every character. The bigger the squashing machine appearing suddenly, the bigger the magic squashing machine moving Ray, some are produced out of their ass to deal with it. Everyone looks sweaty and concerned during all this, but it just feels like there's no true threat to any of these flawed but still godlike heroes we hope to be ourselves in the end. They all laudably feel the presence of their shadows, their conflicts, so no Marvel characters are cartoons anymore. But in their great quests and noble defences, the dead come back to life easily, it seems. Leaving a whole collection of bearded, hunky-white lead men suddenly in the same film to work out how to subtly differentiate themselves from each other and the world's most boring archetype. They all manage a few good wisecracks in the face of the end of the universe, of course, which is what we'd all aspire to do, I'm sure. For many Marvel and comic fans, the point of these stories is not the threats their characters face, but the journeys of these titans. Yet their leap from page to screen, where more people will enjoy them, does seem to rob such legendary characters of some of their more three-dimensional life, sometimes. Another massive box office production, Spielberg's film version of Ready Player One, suffered from this sort of soup of CG and Archetype 2, yet somehow made me a bit actually angry about it, because it felt like a sort of awful millennial manifesto by the end. All we want is to wallow in nostalgia, hiding in our games. Don't take our games away, man. The end of the world we gave up on. Put joylessly like that... It all sounds like the fall of the Roman Empire to me. Decadently overdone. Everything. Which um Oh so where does that leave us in such story craving times? Are we all feeling indigestion from all that cartoonish fable? Even such postmodern wisecracking takes on it? It's a skillful rehash of an old world view of everything, isn't it? And it ultimately has no answers because it never set out to give them to us. It's superhero stuff, man. It's Cape as Comfort Blanket. Except it's not simply that, is it? Room 5. Sensitising. Diving into stories, binging on stories, losing ourselves in stories. It's not just how we cuddle away from the world around us. It's how we make sense of the world around us resonating with the truth of the world within us. But today more than ever, there are blizzards of stories around us vying for our empathetic attention. And when we give something attention, it works in both ways. As a story we hear, read, watch, chimes within us, its echo back to us shapes our inner story. Like the retelling of memories, they change with the telling and we can begin to reinforce our character to fit the story we rather like, or feel is inevitable. I won't attempt too much more analyses in Cod Philosophy Corner here, but I do think there's something intriguing in the idea that the story we assume we are in, or adopt to be in, shapes the character we behave as, even though most of us wouldn't explain it like that. It's not as simple as turning into Luke Skywalker and being heroic. It's rather more insidious than that, I think partly because who can be bothered with all that Jedi training and actual putting of oneself down the Death Star Trench to risk actual death by lucky blaster cannon strike when we can get on with the real business of feeling justified, privately identifying as the hidden hero of some much grander fable than the farty nothing life of tending Uncle Owen and Aunt Baru's crummy desert farm after all, or the simple justification of cynicism. The insidious bit is that such private justification can have the opposite effect to running away to join the Rebel Alliance, but rather have you settle down as a nobody to await fate's justifying call, to just hang around in your status quo, hoping for the magic MacGuffin that finally gets you off your ass at the computer to go and meet old Ben in the real world. Black kids are much less likely to escape poverty, and will end up in gangs women are much less likely to reach the boardroom. Gay boys are disappointments. Trans girls are unnatural. Geeks don't play sport. Real men don't cry. Public toilets must only be gendered. The president will change things for the better. Immigrants will overwhelm us. To be Russian is to drink vodka. To be English is to drink tea. The EU is a tyranny. The EU is a hopeful ideal. Endless unregulated free market growth is the only economic system that works. The future is on fire. You can do nothing to change it. To be creative creative is for arty farties. The story you think you are in can trap you. As the Do lectures put it in a simple tweet, I could never write a book. I could never do a talk in front of lots of people. I could never run a business. I could never surf big waves. The story you tell yourself in the end will become the one that either limits you or sets you free. It's a bit inspirational, Mimi, but hell, you apparently need them all the time. And this one's making a ruddy, pertinent point. You decide what story you're in. But art is very likely to have helped you find and tell that story, shown you a world you want to be part of, given you the lexicon of the characters, or shown you your daily world from such a clear new perspective, you suddenly feel you know how to tell it, how to live it. Art, of course, helped overturn all manner of establishment ways of seeing the world, giving graphic illustration and voice to the growing socialist issues among new industrialised workers, for example. Giuseppe Palizzi di Volpedo's famous painting The Fourth Estate is a striking moment in artistic time that shows this, combining a very 20th century technique in the actual painting with a very 20th century subject matter, ordinary working people. Joe may have taken great care to construct the colour on the canvas with a chromoluminarist technique, yeah. building colour a bit more like print with separated dots of pigment juxtaposing in the viewer's eye to compose the vibrancy of the palette in brain, all very delightfully sciency-seeming in its colour theory. And the end result may be a striking bit of semi-realism, striding out of the vaguely Impressionist heritage lingering about it. But all you are thinking about when standing in front of it at the Museo del Novocento in Milan is... Wow! These are ordinary people who won't lie down for their bosses anymore. They are ordinary people using the right of a strike to walk together out of the shadows into the bright light of midday. A significant illustration of change in the old order of things... So significant, apparently, that after years of making the thing, Joe couldn't sell it. The rich bosses of culture thought it rather too striking. Art here was definitely no longer just about the higher things, the godly or aspirational things. In some ways, it pushed both extremes out further, creating entirely new aspirational gods, while also shining that light right down to the floor. It had journeyed right down from the heavens to the earth the mud. It had moved from the beatific decorative God Christ in Byzantine churches, through seemly portraits of some rich patrons of the Renaissance, to sinew-twisted sculptures of very earthly, tactile humanity, into graphic depictions of social change. Humans were using their creative storytelling instincts to try to make new order out of whole new levels of chaos, and art became about ordinary people. Showing them the power of themselves in whole new worlds, sensitizing more people to the potential of humanity. Also, it appeared to claim, because really, even art loves everyone to know their place. Room six hierarchy. Arguably, as a natural fallout of our economically driven culture of hierarchy, boosted into orbit by such a bonkersly conceptual time in creativity as the 20th century, of sweeping ideas and grand new principles, art has been hierarchical for centuries. Managing to convince critics that anything made by proles, pronging hay bales or riveting liners wasn't really art. Or just, perhaps, it could be a kind of art curiosity, if the word folk was put in front of whatever it was. Because, like a good fractal story structure, art's hierarchy doesn't just exist in the snobby strata of society. It has its own within itself, with priests and intercessors guiding us into the truth and quietly only letting in the qualified. People like jazz teachers... Current head of Momo's horn department, multi-functioning world-class talent and wonderful mate Patrick Hayes felt, I think, in his years at music college the need for a quiet determination about something. To fight for the need for good grooves and good tunes. We're different generations, but bond lovingly around Shaka Khan records, as much as anything, and his natural sense of groove is only fed by his richly practised technical understanding as a professional musician and arranger. Your fingers have got to be able to keep up with the charts. But if the charts don't serve something infectious and inclusive and fun, what really is the point? A point still feeling a little awkward in the hallowed halls of music college, apparently. It's always follow-through composing that feels more intellectually justifiable there, I suspect, qualifyingly clever. Because it is a music-making structure that's very not-pop. Not folksy, not easy to tune into. Because perhaps jazz isn't meant to be enjoyed with your body anymore, not for half a century. It's meant to be intellectually understood, or you clearly aren't fit for the club. Yet, for all the people my age and old are still seemingly infecting this joyless snobbery into their teaching of the ineffable wonders of music, there is a generation of graduates who just don't need to see the world this way. As every session musician I ever met has always put it, it's all music, man. It might be vital to be able to step up with your practice chops and to understand how music's magic is at work in any piece. But I also privately take pride in the idea that so many great young band members have stepped into nights playing Momo Tempo's homemade unqualified music because it's just so confidently fun. Which may be the one bit of qualification I dare claim, as these chaps humble me with their generous skills from time to time. Is good art only made by the qualified? Is that why you don't make it? Well, I do think good art appears to be so to wider audiences when it's just somehow patently confident and rich. Learned in its own way. So there's no escaping the need to educate and evolve in your artistic journey. And frankly, art college, music college, drama college can all be vital ways to frame your journey and speed up the vital process of bumping ideas off other humans. But no one goes to college to really get a bit of paper, not those sorts of colleges. And sometimes the qualification of your work can be that you are an outsider, a maverick. What you practice and get really good at is what will speak clearest for you. But sometimes the things you haven't smoothed out with your 10,000 hours of finger work and book reading give your voice the singular character around its confidence. Rather like, er, any human in any social situation. It's who you singularly are that grabs others' imaginations, not what you emptily remember. It's what you do with what you've learned and how it comes out of you. As warm and fuzzy as this might make me feel, as broadly human as I'm blatantly preaching art to be here, the truth is, art, man. Truly arty art. It's not really for everyone, right? Don't kid yourself it's not elitism, Peach, and that you're not fawning to get in, mate. Well, I mean, art with a capital A really is very much a culture of its own, surely. Its hierarchy is still a tower shrouded in mystery. To most of us, a closed system, as remote and silly-seeming as fashion, only without the high street trickle-downs of influence. As Grayson Perry says, especially in past decades, the art world didn't really need the public. Between curator, promoter, artist and buyer, there was a sort of comfortable closed loop of business. Why let the proles in to bleat about how they could have drawn better and they failed their art O-level? Is this sense of exclusivity, though, nothing to do with art? This expectation of the art world's own culture? Isn't this really just about humans loving to be in top levels of things? The inside clubs, the exclusive memberships. Fine art is just another one. If so, given our times... I wonder if it isn't therefore subject to the same slow-mo collapse of hierarchy as all the arts, well ahead of it in this respect. Music, filmmaking, TV production, writing. Because anyone can ever go now. It's just that, as we saw in Unsee's education episodes, we are systematically across the world taught to wither and ignore our creative thinking. With twitch trigger words blocking our curiosity in the end, perhaps the negative space of a transversal verbal inertia, if you will. So roll-neck smooth gallery haunters, holding chins at the impenetrable pompous waffle of international art English, pomposterizing the meaning of works in white cubes the world over, it hardly helps you feel at home in one, I guess. Weird then, that Tate Modern has been the British capital's most visited attraction of the century. Seems there is more of a hunger for understanding creativity, or at least in trying to get in some culture, than sniffy art mags and scoffing newspapers and stiffly academic school curriculums alike might have worn you down to believe. And do millions of otherwise apparently normal, unpretentious people suffer a recurring, kineto kinetoparapraxis because in our ubiquitous, toxic, pseudo-binary narratives, art still manages to look like fun? Why did we allow in the sly implication that art is just cerebral, academic? Because it obviously isn't if it's dance, not if it's acting, not if it's singing. That's all lungs and muscle stuff, pumping blood around the brain. But is performance really art, though? Well, is it an instinctive exploration of the meaning of your life? And is it creating something Yes and yes, then that too is something of art, no? Surely? Obviously? Hierarchy is so ingrained in us in modern times, we've made it part of our bodies. We manage to disconnect ourselves into component parts that have different levels of importance. Like it's not one complete system, our body. One of the single most significant things, I think, trying to happen around us in our end of modernist culture is the reconnection of our heads to the rest of our bodies. Marcus John Henry Brown, writer and creative director, makes the point of one of his films, The Secret, a profound one. Go for a walk. Over and over, he says. Go for a walk. Get out of the office, he says. It's a trap. Get out of the conference room, because that's where ideas go to die. Discover the serendipity of where you are. Your feet, he says, are steroids for your brain. As another showbiz creative chum, Dave Burst said on Front Row recently, exercise is the single best thing you can do to help your brain find new creativity. It's a sciencey boost to your divergent thinking. This is partly just practical neuroscience. It seems it can be when we daydream that our mind slips out of gear cleverly enough to run some useful processing in the background, as a good few studies on boredom have found. You shouldn't be tying up your processor with front-end tasks all day. You'll essentially end up wearing down your well-being and getting very little done well, especially anything you really care about. As I've learned over years, mucking about for a living while sometimes being hired to help solve creative problems with people, there certainly is always something constructive or productive you can learn to do with a working day. But it isn't always the thing you feel most pressure about in any given moment. The magic core idea to hang an expensive campaign off, for example. It'll need time to sublimate through your noggin, in between the conscious layout pad workouts and teasings out. Sleeps and daydreams. I'm learning to trust this idea and go with the flow of my brain, not force it, but in fact, try to plan around it. What this really means is that all this is actively boosted, mental rest, cognitive improvement, problem solving, even active emotional wellness, all of it together by play. Unself-conscious physical play. I can't help thinking that all grown-ups should be made to play wide games in break every morning. If we could combine such running around, hiding and seeking, with some great cosplay storytelling, we might never go back to the office. It might never have been simply happier. How can we economise this? Is it any wonder gaming and cosplay and filmmaking and fantasy writing and all manner of creative private life stuff... Are a huge part of our lives outside the boring office with the beige photocopier, nice as Tina is. I think our inbuilt story engine running our minds actually carries within it a singular implication in line with this. And it's bigger than recreation, something which Neil Gaiman asserts like this We all have an obligation to daydream, we have an obligation to imagine. You and me. An obligation. Because all this kind of wonderful mucking about helps develop a rounded sense of confidence in who you are as a person. I think body confidence encourages a whole confidence. And sometimes it is an instinct to jump into the physical arts that leads you on a path to develop such a healthy, if demanding, relationship with your body. And if art's job in human life is as much about simply illustrating wider human truths as anything else, then the process of finding that essential confidence in creative mark-making as an artist can show all of us something vital to our lives as humans. Because I can't help picturing this inevitably helping you connect better with those around you to get a bit more sexually conscious, man, because you're more connected with yourself, baby. I'm always talking about confidence in art. Confident mark-making. Not just hesitantly sketching a vague pig shape, but making bold marks with your chalk that feel like a physical pig presence. as one much-retold lesson from an illustration tutor, one lacklustre life-drawing class, put it. And if you are to really get in there and feel it, commit, shape the pig, there is one bit of boot camp like no other that helps turn an art student into an artist or an isolated player into a confident encourager and you're not going to like it because it seems to go against every instinct in your nice private journey with your creativity the tyranny of the crit it could save the world Criticizing Going to art college teaches you how to fail, says Grayson Perry. Which reminds me what Caroline has always said to me. It's the crit. Having to go through the trauma of the crit, putting your work on the wall in front of the whole class, is a vital learning experience that art students get to go through that few others do in their training. Art is a test bed. And it refines the person, not just the idea. The crit prepares you emotionally to cope with failure and move beyond it. I half wish I'd had to go through that, she said. Although she might not have wanted to go through getting nearly kicked off a course for just being so creatively crap. But anyway, I'm off script. Ah, memories. Think simply of the process of making art. It's hands-on, physical, kinetic, practical, hand-eye, improvisory, innovative. It's the synthesis of mind and body, heart and soul. It's whole human stuff, not simply esoteric toss pottery. And most artists I know are oddly down-to-earth as a result. They get things done, made, crafted, practised. They just probably don't regularly get it sold. They're too engaged in the inspiration of making their art and too uninterested in the process of selling. All this when you see it in action is testimony to the real mystery of a true artist, her or his confidence, the confidence of their creative mark-making, even if they're plumbing their insecurities. Some of it might be gifts, but mostly that magic she will have been forged in the crucible of trying and failing, holding up work and getting knocked down, without staying down. But if the enemy of creativity is self consciousness. How does any young creative survive the art college crit? If we think it healthy to foster unself conscious play in children so strongly it becomes reflex in adulthood, how would it pass through the essential creative maturing process of any kind of art college esque crit? In children's training for life growing up, learning how to drive themselves, how might the freedom to play and to suggest ideas stay somehow intact if we're to help them grow beyond critical immaturity? You know, so they don't keep telling you everything they fart is a gift to the world. It's a grim creative journey. The human has to travel between tellytubbyland land and Morrisseyville. But somehow, we must survive it. Can, in fact... These two apparently opposite experiences wrap around each other on our artistic journey. I guess it's about confidence developing with consciousness. The curse of the adult world is forced awareness. Becoming adult is about embracing it and turning that painful forced awareness to your advantage. Education can help you understand better what's happening to you and around you and so foster Curiosity. What a powerful word. One singularly under threat in populist times. Which is rather the point. Fears of the unknown ironically making us stronger and less fearful when we choose to bravely explore the unknown. Like creative Captain Kirks. Ironic how many populist spokespeople love that guy. Curiosity, founded in the true confidence of real consciousness, would potentially make for not just a bold artist, but a true human leader. An exemplar of human emotional exploration, at least. Surely, a type of person humanity seems desperately short of. People equipped to lead others through the minefield of doubt and fear and loss towards self-possession. Surely the artist is the very person for this. Wow. Interesting that the part of human endeavour charged with the logistics of running the world government is virtually by definition the opposite of what good art college training encourages the artist to be. Agile. But if we're talking future leaders, you know, artists... They don't tend to want to lead. Perhaps their empathy renders many of them too thin-skinned for political combat. Perhaps they've just thought too much about things, and their work puts them in the field of storytelling, trying to help the rest of us make sense of things by thinking more about things, seeing things differently. In and of itself, this doesn't get a spreadsheet of engineering works filled out, or a political campaign organised Why write a novel when a manifesto will do, says Lauren Euler in the NYT, implying that you could always stop mucking about and get straight to the point if you really want to make a difference to this world, right? But that's rather the point of artists' work. It's belief in action that rule books don't inspire much. Art doesn't want to tell. It wants to show. Because it's much better practice of the art of connection. Art doesn't want to preach, it wants to testify. So, well, okay, let's strip this all back. Before we go any further, let's ask a really dumb question. What even is an artist? Room nine, inspiring. Art is why we exist. As self-aware avatars of the universe, we are here to witness, enjoy, experience and learn. Art helps with the exploration and keeps the madness at bay. Everything else is just the politics of living." So says my mate Chris, rather summing it up beautifully in a sudden tweet to me the other day, before he then added in an immediate follow-up, oh and it can be a load of bollocks as well sometimes. If I'm going to hold court on this subject like I'm anybody and shoot my damn full mouth off about it, well, why don't I come clean? How do I define an artist? Stop dancing around it if you even can, Peach. Actually, I've long been reasonably comfortable with how I understand the definition of the artist. I'm used to thinking that an artist is someone who instinctively processes life, makes sense of being alive, by creating stuff. Art... Is a byproduct of someone trying to process how they feel, because sentient, empathetic creatures apparently have to. So, if your instinct is to write or draw or compose little tunes, you're being an artist. It doesn't make you automatically a good artist, but you are getting on with being one. Pat yourself on the back, that's you. Now, whether your work will indeed go on to be considered any good or not will partly come down to how much you bother to practice doing it but rather alongside how strong the talent is that you were dumbly born with in the first place. As with most things in the swirling eddies of life's eternal madness, you don't get to say over much at all really, just a bit of influence over how you react to it all. But that's a bit that can make all the difference to you and the poor saps who find themselves in your life when you announce your new dedication to conceptual theatre. It might be helpful to consider that while art is honest personal self-expression, craft is learning how to do it well. Success. Well, that is deciding where you are aiming for on the scale between the two. Creativity, though. Isn't that the crucial word? Can you be creative and not artistic? Well, that's a fine slide rule of a differentiation, maybe. I'd certainly say you can be creative and not an artist, because, well, you won't feel the need to define yourself as one, for one thing. For another, er, all humans are creative. Problem solving is creative. Getting dressed in the morning is creative. Any damn fool thing you decide to do out of thin air is creative. You are creative. You may simply not be used to thinking of yourself that way, and so don't consciously practice creative thinking, which is culturally criminal, isn't it? You've been robbed of the mindset that makes you the most conscious part of all creation, you doofus. But I've come firmly to the belief that the role of art in our lives, and the reason we do it evolutionarily so much, is to help us find new perspectives on ourselves, new ways of seeing we might be recalcitrant and conservative buggers who will usually do what's easy, not what's culturally considered worthy. And we may like to nest in and comfort ourselves. And God knows one of the most chilling and pressing problems of our species is our terrifying gift to ignore horror. But we also have the weirdly recurring itch to know more. And between us it can keep overturning the comfortable status quo annoyingly. If this thing we sometimes call art is a bit fundamental to us lot as animals after all, then is it time we rebooted our understanding of it? So that more of us reacted to the whole idea of it rather less fearfully, less mysteriously. There might be a fair number of people calling themselves artists whose smile might flicker a moment at this potential de-deifying of their role, but I think it might be long overdue. (laughs) The slurry of content washing us all overboard with the plastic waste and churning us helplessly around the world may seem like a loss of quality in art thanks to the ubiquity of the tools to make it these days. Everyone is a DJ, music producer, curator, blogger, vlogger, podcaster, photographer, filmmaker, actor, writer, presenter these days, right? and the results are mostly awful, right? Where are the true greats you wail from far out at contentual sea? But this collapse of hierarchy and the democratisation of the making of creative work, well, it does sound fairer, no? And it means there is nowhere to hide now. It is the power of your ideas that must speak, and of your determination, resourcefulness, open-handedness not the power of your privilege. Which sounds jolly right on, but remember, it's mostly all down to dumb luck again anyway. The point is, even you can have a go. And who knows, you might find you have something inspiring to say. Which has led me to ask a question. Is it high time we subtly change our use of the word artist? Would it be better to say, I have an artistic impulse towards this, to do this. Gosh knows this sounds like splitting idiomatic hairs, but as any copywriter will tell you, the power of fine-tuning words is giant in the human imagination. Just don't also ask them about splitting infinitives, in case they go off on one about something that's just a linguistic convention from another time! Language is as mysteriously powerful over the human mind as music. We're just used to thinking of language as a supremely logical, engineered, bolted-together thing. Especially if we speak German. It's just a code of sounds, matched to a code of marks, that helps us build iPhones so we can take selfies and make porn. But language quietly shapes our world view. So fine-tuning our words can make enormous emotional difference. It helps if your body language isn't especially dickish, of course, as that's mostly how you're communicating. But the right words can change a whole outlook by helping someone make a new connection. I think getting used to saying, I have an artistic impulse towards writing, or whatever medium, would change the vibration of it in the ear of someone listening who's not used to thinking of themselves as creative, because it sort of levels the human talent's playing field, I think. I personally may have an artistic impulse to make up funny little tunes, to explore life through musical storytelling. It just oddly inspires me to get out of bed often, and practicing this may be emotionally cathartic, helping me work through my emotions sometimes, as well as generating excitement and motivationally stoking inspiration. The musical work I produce may even be, these days, kind of okay in the general music production craft, after mucking about with it for 30 years. So in three ways, you can say fairly that I, Timo Peach, do produce art of a kind. Whether many people are in the wood when the tree falls or not, it's still an original noise. For me, if I think of my art music, I would do well in honest internal emotional management to de-pressure my expectations upon the word by remembering that my art is honest but small The guilt of not being a proper musician in the craft sense of specialism will linger in me forever. It's kind of a musician's hang-up, which is how I know I am one, ironically. It's akin to not being a proper anatomically competent drawer as a visual artist. There's a craft duty, it feels, to be able to speak the core language fluently in order to be qualified to go on and subvert all those rules. All the founding grandmasters were like this, right? And there's no hiding from how much this garners respect. But artistic reputation will still come down in the end to the quality of your thinking, not your fingering. Not unless your fingering is freakishly accomplished, and then you will have to be comfortable with being the highbrow equivalent of a circus performer. It all depends where you find success between being able to pay your bills and do something of your thing. But if I, if you, think of our craft in the round of our whole human life then there is a more interesting story, I suspect. Because you don't have to be a grandmaster to be an interesting human. How does my practiced work combine business with music making, copywriting with showing off, gallery poking with jokes cracking, wife loving with sci-fi enjoying? It's all your life, no? Or mine? It's all your experience, your practice. It's all together what makes your voice unique, original. All of it together is how you are really speaking with your life. It may or may not leave interesting residue in something you can hang on a wall. And even that will never be much of the real residue of you. My whole life makes a rather stronger story of experience, shaping outlook and values and intent than any one bit on its own. To resist both the temptation and the burden, the pressure, of thinking of myself and declaring myself an artist is more helpfully inclusive for both me and those I meet, perhaps. To subtly reword it to having an artistic impulse to make music reminds both me and you as I say it that I am first and foremost a human being not a pretentious ass and not some mythical font of ideas because implied in this way of putting it is the idea that any human idiot could follow an artistic impulse there's no fantastical qualification needed this seems powerful to me it reminds me too that my artistic impulse consciously embraced and explored as it is by me is an impulse in a personal mix of impulses alongside a slight degree of nerdy engineering as a designer and one of encouragement as a bit of a joker and of avoiding looking at bank statements as an idiot. It's all part of the typical spectrum of being a person. All of it together. We all have different balances of instincts, different confidences in the exploration of them, but it's not just creativity generally that is naturally human in universal principle. It's art itself. Art is everyone's. Yours, you straight-talking non ponts Cleeks, they're not everyone's. And this is fine. You don't have to be in every clique. But art lives in the human imagination, the human outlook, and not in any one fantastic group of smock-soiling fanatics. You are free to explore everything as you. Indeed, you must Art, the evidence of such explorations that is hailed as good after you've produced it and coyly hung it on a wall somewhere and had some private viewing leaflets made up, which you've forced into the hands of your mates and your mum and dad, forced in return to accept three of your mates' latest self-release cassettes. If it really does turn out to be thought of as any good, it's likely to be clever in some way, let's face it. But it will surely also be truthful, true to itself, honest basically, even in its fakery, if that's its point. When a publicly sharing artist looks like they're fooling themselves, that's when the art is bad, probably. That might be the litmus. Too much copying someone else and not enough of anything to say on its own terms. Something rather more important than craft these days. Similar to having not enough understanding of context. The greatest singers started life miming into their hairbrushes in the bedroom. And how wonderful... But searching for truth may be the actual artistic quest in the end, not merely healthy creative play. And some commit their lives to it. Some use it merely as an occasional private comfort blanket, working out the emotional rub of something. It's all good. It's all us. Bankably good is about markets, and that's a whole different set of expectations. But the pursuit of exploring, of encouraging new ways of seeing, that is perhaps the beginning of how art is actually useful to us. Surely art, you might say sniffily, is its own reward. Art for art's sake. And yes, it doesn't need justifying any more than the art of science for science's sake. But just as science makes progress through a tension between pure exploration as an intellectual end in itself and hefty commissions to solve specific practical problems, The same is true of art. We aspire to beautiful, noble, pure things in our finer moments. We also want to keep food from going off right there in the convenience of our homes without having to live with an industrial refrigeration unit. And maybe we want to make a call to our kids without having to master coding first too. There is a spectrum of reasons why all human creativity is useful to us. Between design and emotional expression, it solves specific problems pleasingly, and it helps us get our head straight. And if one of the biggest problems with modern life is the divorce of head from mind or body, then we really do need to find ways to remind ourselves we have to get our head straight, or we'll have very serious problems indeed. We have to manage our heads to survive even normal-seeming days alive in the universe, in contexts we've mapped enough to know comfortably. Even on a boring Tuesday in the office, our heads need managing. Feeding. So in unusual times, in shifting contexts, we need the impulses of art to lead us into new ways of seeing, to make the best of opportunity. In times of true crisis, surely the well-practiced at creative exploration should be in the mix of those trying to lead our way out of it, surely helping us write new stories of us in order to survive. It's not like this is new. Different styles of art have evolved across the different ages and speak especially strongly to different periods in cultural time. So much so that Aborigine art from thousands of years ago doesn't really fit with contemporary ideas of art because it wasn't made to be self-consciously art like art is today. It's something Grayson Perry highlights. But of course, those who made the ancient pieces weren't intending for their work to be placed in the analytical glare of a gallery and critiqued. Those artists' work didn't effectively say Look, I'm making a point! But it surely is art. The creative product of the instinct to make, emotional, storytelling, cosmic sense of their maker's place in the universe, signalling values, identity and experience. They were surely intended to arrest attention, to speak to the viewer, maybe even inspire And they were, as works, also crafted. Art. And those people, from an age many ages before the ages of recorded history, felt compelled to give valuable time to doing this, when there was presumably much staying alive to be organised, hunting, cooking, soft leaves for the bottom finding. Yet some members of the community, of communities all around the world, however they worked, prioritised art. Today, I think it's simply that by comparison with our earthly ancestors, we are much more self-consciously modern as a society, inventing the gallery to invite in analysis and testing and burning and fusing and cursing and withering of our self-expressions. A cultural laboratory. Banksy, of course, may be more akin in his work to those ancient artists, you might say sagely, but he self-consciously turned the modern natural environment into a gallery bloody postmodernists, always knowing what they're doing. The point is that all of the above is art. We simply get to choose what is also mere decoration. Because angst and poetry aside, we all like to decorate the world around us. Aesthetic speaks to us. Art is just everyone's, man. Well, okay, kind of. But in reality, after this sweeping declaration of the human as artist, art still feels like something you can't admit you don't get, right? Oh, you. You're so zeitgeisty, man. It is, suggests Potter, sculptor, writer, raconteur Grayson Perry, himself winner of the venerated Turner Prize, the very preserve of modernism, to be self-conscious. And it's a two-edged sword of knowing confidence and doubt wounding maker and fan alike, all the time. The hundred years leading up to the 1970s, he says, was a time when artists were questioning and worrying about what it was that they were doing. They weren't just being swept along by traditional belief. Self-consciousness, though, is crippling for an artist. And this has overflowed into all our artistic tastes, consuming it or making it. When we talk about the culture we consume, he says... It's often a dance around how we wish to be seen. What we enjoy reflects on who we are. Which means it will always be a bit elitist, won't it? Some trends, works, artists will always be the preserve of those in the know because we all love to be in the know and hesitate to trepidatiously declare honest love for something not pre-delineated as cool. Lord knows I've had enough musical reviews of Momo Tempo's work parenthesized with I know I shouldn't like this, but... The massive, intricately decorated elephant in the room this all leaves us with is that if art in our modern times is all at once so jadedly knowing and fretsomely self-conscious, lost somewhere between Teletubby Land and Morrisseyville, it can't help but strata into elitism. And if that's true... It's never going to change the world like you're hoping it will, right? I can't argue with the elitism if it's the art world's prices you're talking about. Mind-boggling what an artist can suddenly be worth, and you can wonder why when dropped into their world from cold. But this isn't about art. It's more about human economics, again, how we value things, and how we decide things are valuable at all. It's fashionably crazy. But humans are such contradictory buggers There is no meaningful summing up of a whole century of art Or any movement There are general cultural directions And there are notable divergencies Individuals And individuality is rather the modus of inspiration behind any art How do I make sense of me? The cliques following it all Are simply another thing entirely Think of all those practical down-to-earth artists we know Just getting on with it first and foremost. Whatever the fashions of the art world, the principle of making sense of the real world by making things and expressing feelings of giving voice, shape, colour to our inner lives. This is core human stuff. Essential person well-being work. And it's everyone's domain, potentially. Who cares what critics would make of it? That's never the point of responding to the artistic impulse. The point is, you live inside you. Your inner life is the whole world from your perspective. And if you don't find ways to make sense of that, to manage that, the dials can go crazy. It's nature's dichotomous curse of making you as much a little god as a farting fluid bag of hormones. You are more than any one aspect of you even your art. Life is much more interesting than art, said Alan Caprow. In The Artist as a Man of the World in 1964, he essentially posited the then radical, to the art world, idea that artists didn't really want to be revolutionaries after all, but rather have a nice middle-class comfy life. I'm not sure I've ever had any illusions about this. I've not had much directly to be rebellious about, so never considered myself one. I'm sensible, and I grew up with doting, dotty parents from the theatre. I was born very slightly outside the norm and so could afford to aspire to a mid-century home that I could keep tidy. Being angry at Thatcher didn't feel like rebellion, more an obvious duty. But the implications of Capro's assertions here are significant, really. As Grayson Perry puts it, Capro thought the profession of artist was not that different from any other specialised job. Certainly my dad broadly thought this, It's a proper job, it's hard work, don't put it down, he'd say if I ever made a quip about drawing boxes for a living as a designer or making goofy little tunes as a music producer. He knew the graft and skill of theatre, something that looks like dressing up in silly costumes and gaudy makeup and singing about whimsical things like fairies when you're a chorus member in the doily cart, and he was a working-class wartime kid from North Bournemouth. But this democratisation of art is really the thing here. It shouldn't need it, of course, but the art world has so annexed it. We need culturally, comprehensively, deprogramming on it. Yet, for all that, art has still infected us all. Distant as it may seem, it's gotten out into the bloodstream of our culture. Perry says that Virginia Nicholson, niece of actual bohemian Virginia Woolf, said, We're all bohemians now. And if you think about it, he goes on, all the things that were once seen as subversive and dangerous, like tattoos and piercings and drugs and interracial sex and fetishism, all these things that artists made use of to show their freedom and otherness, they crop up on X Factor now on a Saturday night for family viewing. How free we all are now, apparently. How other and individual. I'm not obviously. Seeing the hopey changey bit. My mate Chris has long collected fountain pens. Didn't use one to write his jolly clever tweet about art, but just loves the look and feel of them. They say something to him and actually help him say some things better. I'm a little dyslexic, he said to me, during our latest intellectual salon time in the local coffee house, and I often find that when I bang out a report or a piece of writing on the keyboard, I look up and it's a blizzard of red underlinings. Yet, when I write, handwrite, with a beautiful fountain pen, I make far fewer mistakes. It's not just slowing things down to take care. My pattern recognition improves somehow. Physically drawing the shapes of the words with a beautiful tool helps me spell. Hand-eye stuff helps cognitive stuff, brain connecting to body, and the cleverness of a little daily slowness and daily imagination. Chris's lovely pen collection is a tiny vignette of practical wisdom in a noisy world, I'd say poetically, evidently still in pompous intellectual salon mode. Which is all very well, but while we're whimsically shaping cursive bowls and descenders like we're Jane Austen, isn't art supposed to be lighting the ruddy fires of revolution? Well, I think it does all the time. Sometimes you see it and sometimes you don't. And this is my basis for hope. The New Exhibitions Museum in New York opened its 2018 triennial with Songs for Sabotage, an expo of works asking how individuals and collectives around the world might effectively address the connection of images and culture to the forces that structure our society. Annie Godfrey-Larman asks in a BBC article, Can Art Change the World? How can it participate in networks of power that its content willfully rejects? Often so-called political art simply aestheticizes protest or resistance. You have the T-shirt, go on. Sometimes it has the effect of moral licensing, instilling in its viewer a false sense of having accomplished something. And retweet. Art and power, she says, have always been begrudging bedfellows. After all, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels wrote the Communist Manifesto from the comfort of La Maison du seigneur, a gilded restaurant in Brussels. Well, I mean, of course they did. That's where I'd do it. As she says, propaganda, allegories and calls to action are not themselves action. And art that represents change or resistance does not necessarily affect change or resistance. And anyway, much disruptive art seems to have been pointed at the art world itself, rather self-referentially, how postmodern, and removed from ordinary life, it seems. But art is often what keeps ordinary life going when everything is under strain. And it's interesting that artists are often the ones persecuted in places where real disruption is needed. Music does this a lot, of course, with sound rebel legends like Felakuti in Nigeria, or the hugely revered Somali music scene, or the Ethiopian stars who dare to keep a cultural thread of sanity going under the Derg regime, or the Rye artists of Algeria, or the sounds of hip-hop growing out of the repressed misery of 70s New York. Or the contentious contemporary funk of the favelas, upsetting all the asfaltos in Brazil today. Sounds of playful life thumbing a nose at dictatorship and convention. So surely any Hopi changey bit about art should simply list out tons of examples of life changed by art, no? I agree. But where do we even start? I think you could mention many yourself, and we'd be here together for the rest of the decade listing them. There are, I think, though, various kinds of ways art oils the wheels of our problems, besides holding on to our dreams and identities when oppressed. You could look to the example of some social projects using collective creativity to reinvent everyone's sense of local identity, like Pintando Santa Catarina Palopo, an installation in the London Design Biennale, highlighting a project that's using art heritage to reinvigorate a little Guatemalan village on Lake Atitlan, A plan to paint the whole town, some 800 houses, in vibrant patterns inspired by local ancestral textiles involving all the people who live there. An idea the designers and locals believe is transforming its economy and instilling hope for its future by essentially turning it into a monumental artwork. It's very cheery. Then there's the way creative business can influence us. Fashion is as creative and unenvironmentally friendly as any industry could be at once. But brands like People Tree have been championing much more ethical ways of making and selling clothes for years, perhaps helping to inspire fashion startups like Ade. As entrepreneurs designing for the future, we have to think about what kind of world we want to live in, co-founder Nina Fullharbour tells FastCo. At our core, we believe that it needs to be the healthiest planet possible and a sustainable future where we can all live in sync with nature. All of which encourages fashionistas like you to curate a more ethical personal brand, try to deny it. Design is, in many ways, the applied end of art that will ultimately save us, trying to synthesise form and function around truly human living as it does. And this is a whole episode to come, in a way, or just an aspect of every episode of Unsee to come. But graphic designers in particular have a beautiful potential to arrest thinking in a heartbeat. Stephen Bowles' stunning coffee table pour, Cause and Effect, Visualising Sustainability, is an application of graphic directness that is as backlit with purpose as any of the founding fathers of commercial art during the war, such as Abram Games showcasing a rich collection of campaigns, posters, infographics and installations that try to arrest the social possibilities and challenges interconnected around the human planet today, its editor says it's high time for visual narratives to provide answers to questions concerning people today. What is going awry and why? What will my future look like? What solutions are there? And what can I do? Then there is the simple place of art as therapy. Finding themselves living on a symbolic front line of the economic conflicts currently pulling Europe in different directions, the Greek island of Lesbos, Eric and Philippa Kempson have had to turn their pleasant artistic retreat into a kind of base camp for responding to the refugee crisis. And where they are in a nexus of econo-social ley lines from across the world, it's been a hell of a trial, I think. But amid their political battles and practical energies, one of the things they felt compelled to keep going to combat the misery of the island's camp, Moria, as they continue to help pull people and bodies out of the sea, is art therapy classes for those caught there. As Eric told Newsday on the BBC World Service this week, it's something to try and help children and families cope with what they've been through. How many artists do I know who have used music and mark making to help others deal with their disabilities, anxieties, mental health? Perhaps though when you pull out from the true personal scale of art, its real effectiveness globally is viral. Things we are used to thinking of as separate can come together into something new through the natural discourse and curiosity of culture. And when more so than the exponentially unfathomable digital age we are now in. Name your meme, theme, movement of choice here. I don't know, I rather like the idea of Afro-EDM. Very European dance music sensibilities finally being rerouted into African soil. Who knew a sort of township Gary Newman was even possible? Yet Ibibio Sound Machine annexed half the BBC's playlists with it last year. And it's brilliant. Then there are the moments of creative example, where artists bring hope simply by making it far enough to turn up at all. Someone like Arthur Mitchell, who died this week, was the first African-American to dance with the New York City Ballet, and one of the first black ballet dancers in America, or probably anywhere. As The Guardian shares following his death, the dancer Misty Copeland wrote, You gave me so much through our conversations, your dancing, and by simply existing as a brown body in ballet. But you were so much more than a brown body. You're an icon and a hero. Hearing him talk from just earlier this year, in his late 80s, he sounded as lively and lovely as a creative at the height of his powers, no older than someone my age. Or someone like Octavia Butler, African-American female science fiction writer. At college during the Black Power movement years, she went on to articulate fantastical stories from a wholly different perspective to the mainstay of sci-fi writing up until then. How much has science fiction especially been able to tackle such things? Just on screen in the mainstream. Captain Jack Harkness, as regular Doctor Who and Torchwood character, is seen by many as a significant turning point for gay culture in American TV. After him, everyone wanted dynamic, omnisexual aliens in their shows. Who wouldn't? What did that do for gay people watching? Wanting to tell stories of the world from their perspective? What will happen in a couple of weeks from writing this when the first female Doctor steps into the franchise? How many supposed fans of the show will continue to feel it's been vandalized? And how many new young minds will be engaged with wonder in just the same spirit of exploration and inspiration to think about the universe as Doctor Who has always so wonderfully created? Or think of the other quite bombshell, Rey in Star Wars. At last, as I think a generation of young sci-fi girls cheered, at last there is someone I can relate to in this wonderful space fantasy fable. And what about the movies? Because I think the single biggest centre-culture bombshell this year has been Black Panther, when Marvel suddenly took the world to school. Because for the first time, I don't know, maybe ever, what we saw in that mainstream multiplex feature was not just a view of the world today from a genuinely Afrocentric perspective with all its implications, but a vision of what Africa could have looked like without colonialism. An effortless mixing of sexual, technical, and cultural equality A utopian dream I haven't been as excited by in, I can't remember, right there in the dark heart of Hollywood. Art, science, and identity, interesting. Together, successfully aligned, they could empower us, perhaps like we've never known, whatever our heritage One of the titans of cognitive ability, so sympathetic to the rhythms of art and social justice, was the daddy of all brilliant scientists, and Doc Brown's dog, Einstein. And as he said, the most beautiful experience we can have is the mysterious. It is the fundamental emotion that stands at the cradle of true art and true science. Whoever does not know it, and can no longer wonder, no longer marvel, is as good as dead and his eyes are dimmed. Unless he didn't say that. It might have been fake internet meme, Einstein. Either way, it's still good. There's something lovely about the idea that, to help a crucial part of the development of its forthcoming starshade space probe, NASA commissioned young artist Robert Salazar, a designer of origami for an interdependent world, as he says. He first took inspiration from the story of Sadako Sasaki, who turned to the ancient paper art in hospital after the bombing of Hiroshima as both therapy and symbolism for a much better balanced future for humankind. For Robert, this lit the blue-touch paper of a life exploring the delicate creative practice with a strong sense of social vision. I recognise origami design as being analogous to living sustainably, he says with projects highlighting ecological social issues around the world. Now he's helped a space agency design a giant folding shade to be launched into distant orbit so we can take much better photographs of planets orbiting other stars in our search to resolve the question of life in the universe. It's something that I'm sure Carl Sagan himself would approve of heartily. It echoes back something of the spirit of the Voyager Gold Discs, perhaps one of the most creatively audacious works of art meeting science in history. By which I mean, of course, the... But the story of the moment in this regard is Yusaku Maezawa, a Japanese billionaire, founder of fashion brand Zozo, an obviously visionary name there, who has been revealed this week as the first SpaceX lunar tourist. Yup. Elon Musk is now planning a magic bus ride around the dark side. A keen collector, Maya were famously paid $110 million for an untitled piece by the late Haitian puerto Rican American artist Jean-Michel Basquiat. I can't seem to be quite focus through the wincing to see what he's apparently just paid to be on the first big Falcon rocket that will follow Apollo 8's perspective-bending voyage away from Earth. It's likely to be double the price tag he paid on the ART. But the real news in this story for me is what he wants to do with the experience. Now, Basquiat was an artist whose energetic-looking work focused on suggestive dichotomies such as wealth versus poverty, integration versus segregation, and inner versus outer experience. Miyazawa, prepared to pay so much for just one of his canvases, apparently said, What if Basquiat had gone into space? For this is a billionaire with an eye for new perspectives, and an extensive international collection of artworks has led him to announce, with his own seat on the BFR, a project called Dear Moon. Yusako Maezawa wants to take eight artists into space. A painter, a musician, a film director, a fashion designer, some of Earth's greatest talents will board a spacecraft and be inspired in a way they have never been before, his production says. An intro film that itself balances a quietly weird tension between almost moving and Black Mirror. How could such an idea not appeal to the current king of tech story changers, Elon Musk? It's all at once one of the most extravagantly Lerman-esque sounding acts of gauche fashionista folly to almost Zoolander proportions and just ruddy exciting things I've heard this century. Talk about wanting to invest in new ways of seeing. No pressure on the expo when home again everyone. I am, of course, biting my knuckle with great art mate Andy Robinson at the idea that someone has stolen a march on the centrepiece to our own work, in the shape of things to hum, his film, The Martian Artist, before we found any funding to even finish it. The idea's been stolen in the real world! But, when it comes to the future, truth is certainly stranger than fiction. It's no wonder our heads keep getting pulled in different directions at once when we think about it. With all our longings for some hopeful new vision around the planet today, if environmental health really does equal mental health, it's no real surprise if the interconnected challenges converging on us today are indeed all symptoms of one dominating human outlook. The practised global habit of disconnected thinking. I often don't know how anyone is really supposed to look up from our lives and find any emotional connection to such massive challenges. But I do know that our lives are shaped dramatically by those challenges and we're feeling the pain of them every day. So much of our human world makes us unwell, with yet such promise of really empowering us. And I think deeply, we are in flux between these two outlooks. It's happening all around us. That's what's going on, I think, in a sense. What's needed for us today, I do think, is a regular hit of inspiration. Regular stories of encouragement in our hopes, which means one of the single greatest creative roles we will play in our own lives is editor. The role that makes or breaks the success of any piece of work, or in this case, our wellness. Choosing what we listen to, see, spend time with, and how much of it will shape our mental health enormously. How much we know well how much that is new and fresh and invigorating to us, we can switch off and find plenty more quiet. But whilst we will depend on each other for inspiration, like lighting regular sparklers or the occasional awesome spectacle, that mind and body connection stuff is really worked into success by something else. Practice. Yeah, there's no worming out of it. Get in the woodshed. Physical habits. Physical habits. First, forget inspiration, says Octavia Butler ruthlessly. Habit is more dependable. Habit will sustain you whether you're inspired or not. Habit will help you finish and polish your stories. Inspiration won't. Habit is persistence in practice. The future, I think, will be sparked by exciting dreams, but built with a lot more perspiration. We're going to need those global goals to help us plan the engineering works of our new habits if we really want that more hopeful future. Maybe art's biggest truth to us is simply this. You create your own world. What you articulate helps make you, shapes your outlook. The more you speak it out, walk it through with your body and mind, the more real it is to you, and so in many ways to those around you. Who knows if real Einstein or fake internet meme Einstein said, we need to ask if the universe is friendly, but you get to choose whether you are. It's something that seems to echo through yoga, aligning body, mind and spirit you create the world you want to live in. In a way, art coupling with science and knowledgeable practice and really coexisting in our cultural mind together might be how we help straighten out the antenna of our spirituality. The beyondness of us that keeps calling through the noise, it seems. Art has long been how we've tried to tune in to such mysterious inner longings, calling to the outer limits. It's interesting that in trying to make solid sense of our internal emotional wiring, psychoanalysis has intertwined with studies of language. Whether you're analysing behaviours from a gloriously nerdy voodoo neuro-linguistic programming point of view, for example or imagining a biological route to linguistics as championed by Noam Chomsky, especially in the 60s, and pondering a sort of universal genetogrammatic firmware in the human brain, a phrase I do hope linguistics adopt immediately. However, we follow the instinct to turn ideas into speech and form syntax between us. Words just make things real to us. Speech becomes belief. I hear it even sometimes becomes action. All through the Vietnam War, as Chomsky in activist mode has famously said, the American news media constantly described the US forces as defending, not attacking. Simple propaganda radiated into our ears enough can form our very certain view of who we are and why we're doing anything. And for thousands of service personnel coming home to that story from the one they'd lived through was a reality wrench that wrecked their lives. Even just as mantra, speaking out what you want somehow helps you see it. I admit personally, I have to externalise constantly in order to shape my ideas and, well, just my creative schedule. Wandering around talking to myself like a madman. I could never work in an office again now, I fear. But in a general, slightly poetic sense, what you say becomes a part of what's real in your model of the world. So stop telling yourself you're a doofus, doofus. In some theoretical physics clubs, there is even baffling talk around the possibility that in some timey-wimey subatomic way, life's later actions might actually kind of echo back to life's earlier actions. Somewhere between something Einstein called spooky action at a distance, which is exemplary science nomenclature in anyone's book, and the famously weird possibilities of quantum entanglement, There is canteen chatter over the salad bar about subatomic particle retrocausality. And who knows how any real evidence for this emerging might imply effects on the human mind. It's deliciously bonkers and vague, but I think it will take yet more playful leaps of imagination to draw up better tilts at the theory of everything, and how ape consciousness might fit into it. I have no idea. But while the physicists are trying to pull up the floorboards of the final frontier, I can't help feeling their work is very akin to the exploration of art. And in the practical world, swirling around our studios and laboratories, I do believe this. Art will help us change the world, not simply through inspiring us to suspend disbeliefs or to crack open whole new perspectives, but by teaching us how to practice a more creatively healthy life. Breaking out of boxes, looking after the mind by engaging the body, encouraging playful well being to encourage real personal flow, real personal understanding. The daily practices of accepting and working with one's self, accepting one's weaknesses, facing them and turning them daily to one's advantage, enabling one's self to better connect. With all the ideas and people and challenges and opportunities richly around them. Understanding the practical balance between telling new stories and showing them. If environmental health equals mental health, art can unlock it. Writer Neil Gaiman's point about us having an obligation to daydream. It's actually more hefty than simple productivity, isn't it? It's about purpose. And it strikes to the heart of Unsee the Future, as far as I'm concerned, when he says, It is easy to pretend that no one can change anything, that society is huge and the individual is less than nothing. But the truth is, individuals make the future, and they do it by imagining that things can be different. That is always where it starts. You and a damn fool idea and having the courage to explore it, to live it. Watching a moment in history described on the telly again recently, I found myself thinking that a towering figure of progress from the 20th century like Gandhi was hardly born to be a legend, and his success in ultimately prying India out of the grip of British occupation, so cracking open the demise of the often-cited greatest empire in the recorded human story, was not entirely down to his guile and vision but also to how much he understood the spirit of his age, his context. When he walked his 240-mile salt march from his then base near the ashram in Ahmedabad, across India's western state of Gujarat, to the coastal village of Dandee, somehow as just one skinny, peasant-looking bloke, he amassed thousands to fall into his gently strident pace, because he was beautifully tapping into a huge truth shared across his country. It was time for political self-rule. That he became the lightning rod for this movement, the historic turning point character, is, yeah, significantly because he knew how to tell a great story, live it, dress it, invoke imagery that would resonate with potentially millions of Indians at just that point in time. And British. I doubt anyone in London missed his clear nod to the Boston Tea Party in his seizing of salt economics for leverage. How tax can topple foreign rule. He did train as an English barrister after all. He supposedly even put a pointed drop of that salt he'd walked to Dandee to scoop off the beach into his first official cup of tea with the Viceroy, after he'd finally been released from prison and they began the dialogue that would send Britain packing. He was a legend in the end, became the fable as much as the freedom for India, but he wasn't drawing up desire for a new product that nobody knew they wanted. His almost prophet-like living out of story came at just the right time, articulated pertinently enough to grab the imagination, connected as it is, to the heart. Like many ancient prophets and more modern radicals alike, he paid a price for such a revolution in vision. His compassionate openness eventually saw him murdered publicly by a man seemingly panicking at the erosion of some old certainties and that assassin himself represented another spirit of the time in India pulling the other way with none of the vision and wit of Gandhi only flashing fear it seems but one still not evaporated completely today I think Fear of losing old archetypes All around the world today we are clinging to them like idols Living a new vision though can cost you everything. But is living without one really living? I think some of these heroes might say soberly. All I know is Gandhi's powerful vision of peaceful protest has left a legacy on the whole human planet. His philosophy of Satyagraha combining truth with peaceful insistence inspired some fearfully faithful resistance to British brutality so ultimately shaming the empire around the world. Gandhi even became Time Magazine's Man of the Year in 1930 while still in prison for salt abuse. It is said he affected the civil rights movement in America with this attitude. Today, the most lasting effect may simply be a big country working out its own democratic future. Pluralism in India may have been dealt a hard blow by partition at the inception of Pakistan, But it is a future that now includes gay people no longer criminalised for being who they are in love, thanks to a longed-for landmark ruling by India's High Court recently. As Neil Gaiman puts it, in the war of ideas, art always wins in the end. The sweep of history isn't much to do with the noble imagery of figures like Mohandas K and the poetic grandeur of countries like India those Polish knockoffs of Beatles songs from behind the Iron Curtain. Even they have become something oddly moving, as well as still a bit ridiculous. In the story of a country that's been through a lot to find a bold, creative future for itself, they are cultural markers, little tattoos of meaning in the memory of the people who speak Polish, remaining long after the living memories have gone, speaking truth from the dead. A collective embracing of shadows. Many people of course embrace their own shadows with ink, literally and figuratively take the bodily scars of their stories and embellish them, tattooing those hard-won stripes into something beautiful, even decorative, creating a whole new way of seeing what's shaped them. As we dare to look forward, of course the truth is, There is no single new story of us to be created. The future will be a rich plurality of futures, of human stories winding us together. But I wonder, if we find ourselves around the campfire together, seeking a little comfort, a little distraction, a little hope, what story will you want to share? That ancient arena in Verona was once a place of bodily bloodshed, drama, death and politics. And now? Well, thanks to art, even seats of ancient global power can be politely gentrified into stony seats of contemplation and more lofty entertainment. I wonder, what will satisfy human audiences in the millennia to come? When it's you down there, On the red splashed floor of the arena with everyone watching and no one watching spotlights or lion gates rising your very life possibly at stake as you face fate you may feel like you've not been thrown into all this with much and you haven't when you boil it down to simplify your fearsome reality all you've got is the whole world in your head and your life in your hands. Your job is to make something of it. Discover more links and video and reading on the blog of this post at momotempo.co.uk forward slash lingo. And be the first to get the future in your inbox. Subscribe to the Momo memos at forward slash amigo. Listen, read, ponder and share. Do. Unsee the future is a Momo Tempo production. Obviously.